Hello everyone, and welcome back to Fear. I'm your host, Paul Rondo, and in today's episode, we have another Fear the Pasta episode where we cover The Man in My Basement Takes One Step Closer Every Week. As promised before, we're going to continue on with all the different parts, so without further ado, let's just get to the story. The Man in My Basement Takes One Step Closer Every Week, Part 3, by Poltergeist. Thus far, I'd broken every single so-called rule. One, you'll begin in the furthest corner of your basement. If you see him, do not overreact. He may decide to move on. I'm guessing that snapping the intruder in half and throwing him into a trash compactor counts as overreacting. Two, if the intruder decides to stay, he will take one step closer each week. Based on my math, I had about 264 days to go until the, he reached my bedroom. Probably sooner since they seem to be moving faster now. 3. Do not attempt to speak to him, hurt him, or get third parties involved. I threw him in a trash compactor. 4. Any violation of the rule 3 Any violation of rule 3 generally results in several quick steps forward, depending on severity of transgression. That would explain why he'd already been the center of my rec room. 5. Barricading the doors is acceptable. This will slow him down, but the process will be very loud. Difficult to sleep. I might do this when the time comes. Earplugs and white noise to sleep over the sound. 6. To others, the intruder will appear as a mannequin, or a rubber dummy, or a coat hanger, etc. Do not let guests near him. I don't even want to think about this one right now. 7. The intruder will not move forward so as long as, as to have guests in the house. Guests who actually want to be there. Once I had an old friend sleep on my couch for three months and the intruder didn't move a step. I have no friends. Not anymore. 8. You can leave the house, but never sleep anywhere else. Never make plans to move, even browsing for houses online, etc. The importance of this rule cannot be understated. Okay. From here on out, I'd follow the rules until I thought of something better. Two sleepless nights crawled by until I finally built up the courage to go back upstairs. I needed my phone. Down the basement hallway in the center of my rec room stood the coat rack. Behind it, my phone lay face down against the concrete floor. I crept forward, burning my eyes all the while, sliding into the rec room. I pushed my back up against the wall and glanced over at the coat rack. Immediate regret followed by the sight I saw. Nails and wires snaked around mangled shards of wood. The coat rack was a substitute. Then what did the actual intruder look like? An image flashed through my mind. A gaunt man with a carnival smile held together with nails and wire. I shook it off and leapt forward, snatching my phone. I scrambled away and hauled up the stairs, hands of nothing chasing me from behind. I reached for my ankles, ever-stretching st ever arms desperate to pull me back in the dark. I slammed the door shut and pressed my back against it. Breathing heavily, I slid down the floor. It's a coat rack, I told myself, but the words rang empty now, like parent telling frightened child there's nothing to be afraid of, there's nothing hiding under the bed. And really, they both know there is. There's always something hiding under the bed. Maybe it's not the long-toothed monster you can imagine as a child. Maybe it's a feeling, a hidden thing you can't accept because you don't even know what it is. So instead, you pretend it doesn't exist. A festering obligation you keep pushing back and back, always lurking just out of sight, hiding in your peripherals. Sometimes you even catch a glimpse of it, only to look and find nothing. You shrug it off. You turn back to your food, your booze, your... Knock, knock, knock! Pounding at the front door. I got up, slinked over, and pulled it open. There, just as I expected, stood Howie. 
Brandon, he said, wearing an oversized smile and an oversized white tee with baggy sweatpants. Owie, I said, fighting back to pull up sleep deprivation. Sorry to bother you so early, it's just... He paused, looking over his shoulder, and back to me. There's been a few break-ins around the neighborhood last night. Were, were you hit? I shook my head, no. Fortunate, said Howie. Behind him, in the driveway of the house across the street, sat a red Kawasaki motorcycle. First and only time I've seen a vehicle over there. Anyway, said Howie. See you around. You turn to leave. Howie. He stopped and turned back. Did you know them? I said, still watching the house across the street. Mr. Carver? A little, said Howie. He ran a restoration thing. Fixed up our basement after a flood. Nice man, but quiet. I nodded. Howie smiled and turned back. Anyways, be safe out there, he said, humming to himself as he strolled off. I pulled the door shut and turned back inside, reaching into my pocket. I took out my phone and dialed. The tone rang out a couple times until, Hello? Mitchell Carver and I met in a diner on the edge of town. A 2010's diner designed to look like a 1950's diner. Every roadside greasy spoon cliche in the book. Movie poster plastered to the walls. Front grill of a turquoise Cadillac hung up above the front door. Red leather boots lined up against the windows. I sat there, staring blankly outside. Across the highway sat abandoned middle-class suburbs. were closed 12 years back. Traffic droned like warming flies. Mitchell sat across from me. He wore a letter jacket and a ball cap, and his eyes were quiet and distant. You don't count as third party, I asked. Mitchell, Mitchell eyed me, confused. The rules. No third party, I said. He shook his head. No. Why? Already a believer. Studying him, I took a sip of bitter black coffee. He still seemed sincere, but trustworthy? I wasn't sure. Why does belief matter? I don't really know yet, said Mitchell. Leaning back in his seat, he glanced around the diner, almost like he expected someone. He turned back to me, suddenly nervous. You need to tell me what happened. Excuse me? He said on the phone, something changed your mind. I raised an eyebrow. I hadn't told Mitchell about the first coat rack incident for several reasons. Mainly, I didn't want to set him off. For all his sincerity, this guy did seem like the most stable of... He did not seem like the most stable of individuals. Not that I blame him, considering his life circumstance. Why are you helping me? I said, changing the topic. He looked at the window, his eyes flickering back and forth as traffic sped by. He turned back to, to me. I killed my dad, he said. I mean, not literally, but it's my fault that he died. He weighed over his next words carefully. The traffic outside slowly droning even louder, like a rising tide. Mitchell continued. The last few years of his life, nobody believed him. We all thought he was crazy. But he never talked about, about it straight up. He just left notes. Sometimes he'd go home after a visit and find out it find one in find one in tucked away in your shoe. He cleared his throat. The notes were always about the person hiding in his house. How they were trying to literally tear from my dad to death. The front door chimed open. Mitchell tensed up and glanced back over his shoulder. A family of four shuffled inside. He relaxed and turned back to me. I just want to make sure what happened to him doesn't happen to anyone else. He leaned back in his seat again, hands wrapped tight around a cup of untouched coffee. Fair enough. Look, said Mitchell, if you broke the rules once, even twice, it's fine. But you need to tell me what happened. I nodded slowly, took a deep breath, and I snapped the coat rack in half, threw it in the trash compactor. Mitchell's eyes filled shock, a shock he immediately repressed, like a doctor trying to act cool in front of a patient with a horrific test result. Okay, he said, and it came back the next day? Yeah, held together by nails and wire. Mitchell nodded. 
How much further ahead was it? Front door chimed once again. Or chimed open again. But he didn't look back. Open ten steps from the corner. About ten steps from the corner, I said. Mitchell nodded, again acting like it was all good when it clearly wasn't. Another question dawned on me. Why does it look like a coat rack? Mitchell shrugged. None of the rules are set in stone. Did you buy the place with your own money? Yes, well, sort of. Mortgage. Yeah, that shouldn't... Mitch? Voice from beside cut the conversation. An older man, wearing a brown leather jacket and carrying a red bike helmet. Tall, wiry, and in need of a shave. Clint Eastwood vibes. Mitch? Where have you been? He said, his voice strained with sadness. Mitch looked away, acting like he wasn't even there. Mitch? He said again, his voice shaking now. I turned back. Mitch stared down at the coffee in his hands. His reflection rippled in waves of highway traffic rumble. His eyes were wet. Mitch, please, the man said, leaning forward slightly. I've been looking everywhere for you. The stranger failed and uh, trailed into silence and stepped back. He looked at me. His eyes were filled with years of suffering. He reached into his coat pocket, produced a card, and placed it face down on the table. He looked back at Mitch one last time. I'm always here, kid, he smiled grimly, and turned away and wandered back towards the exit. Hands on the door, he stopped and looked toward us. He opened his mouth to say something, but turned away, pushed outside, and stepped down to the gravel parking lot. He crossed the lot, climbed onto a red Kawasaki motorcycle. He looked back at me through the window. His eyes were different now, apathetic. Suddenly, his eyes lit up, darted back and forth for a couple seconds, then snapped back to the vacant apathy. Almost like someone had crawled into his mind, taken a quick look around, and jumped back out. He pulled on the helmet and revved up the engine and sped off. Mitch? I said, still staring at the window. The realization of who that was finally drawn on me. It's not him, said Mitch. Not anymore. I turned back. Mitch, hands shaking, took a sip from his copy and set it down. He wanted to know what happens when it reaches you? He threw up his hands and as if to say, wish granted. I didn't fully understand what he meant by that, but right now wasn't the time to push. Mitch looked on the verge of tears, reaching across the table, he grabbed the card and handed it to me. I already know what it says, but I turned it over and read anyways. Carver Restoration and Renovation. Owner, E.T. Carver. So that's, uh, that's definitely something to chew on for this whole week, because... Apparently it doesn't kill you whenever you're, uh, whenever it reaches you. Maybe it just takes you over. Maybe it kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe it has all of your thoughts and... Man, I don't know, it's weird. I'm not quite sure how his, if, if something's wrong with his dad or not. Having him look around like that at the end was, it was a little odd, but... I don't know, I'm excited to hear part four. So, and I'm hoping you guys are excited to hear part four too. Also, if you want to see or if you want to get your stories put up on here, all you got to do is send them over to podcastfear at gmail.com. That's again, podcastfear at gmail.com. And if you could do me a huge favor, just share this around. Share it with your grandma. I'm sure she'd love it. But uh, until next time, guys and gals, possibly, always remember to face your fears. <laughs>